Hi folks, my name is Kim and this is The Contemporary Educator, a podcast dedicated to all my fellow teachers out there trying to figure out how to balance all of the demands placed on The Contemporary Educator. I live and work on the unceded traditional territories of the Lekwungen peoples of the Esquimalt and Songhees nations. I just want to start by kind of recapping the last podcast. Um, I focused on talking about anxiety and depression in the classroom and how those presentations might change from in-person instruction to in online instruction. And so um, I really focused on those two presentations, anxiety and depression, and I explained in the last podcast are comorbid, meaning that the two things often coexist. They often present simultaneously. You know, since then I've done some kind of reflecting and I realized like anxiety and depression are byproducts of a whole lot of other emotions and stuff going on too, and that it might be helpful for folks for me to address some of those things as well. So One of the things I want to talk about today is grief and loss. And when we often think of grief and loss, we think of bereavement in terms of losing a loved one. And it's considered like a tangible loss. Like if we were to say to somebody, you know, my spouse died, my sibling died, there's a very real response to that loss. And people, for the most part, can understand and empathize with the loss of a loved one. They can validate your feeling of depression, your feeling of anxiety, your feeling of loss. However, there's a lot of other kinds of grief and loss as well. And I think most folks know this or at least have experienced it and maybe couldn't put words to it. But like grief and loss is one of those things that is really fluid and we can feel it in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons. And, and our reasons can be different from person to person. So of course, death is one of the reasons that we can experience grief and a feeling of loss, but there's also like living loss or secondary loss or intangible loss. And that's like, for instance, for children or, or youth or even adults, but divorce can be a really difficult one. And that can be um, an experience of loss and an experience of grief. There's also like the loss of normalcy or routine, the fact that you know, you lived one way and had all of these privileges that you no longer have, that can lead to a huge feeling of grief. This is the kind of grief that youth and children are going to be experiencing right now. They're going to be experiencing that loss of routine. Some of them are going to be, like I said this in the last podcast too, but barometers for the health of their family. So what what I mean by that is that they might really be showing signs of or feelings of loss and grief or presenting with anxiety and depression because that's what their their whole family is experiencing too. So that's one of the things that is kind of an underlying <clears throat> or I guess a precursor for the anxiety and depression. And that's why anxiety and depression are reasonable and realistic responses to a sense of loss, right? As you'll hear from like future podcasts of mine, I'm, I don't really conform to the medical model wherein we look to diagnose. I feel often in 99.999% of cases and and people that I've had the privilege of working with that mental health is one of those things that reflects the context in which people are trying to function and we don't go and diagnose somebody for responding to something a certain way right like we drop a drink and we clean up that drink our response obviously when you drop a drink on the floor is to clean it up nobody is then looking at okay, well, how many other times have other people dropped that drink and then cleaned it up or done it differently or grabbed a paper towel versus grabbing a cloth? 
And we don't look to diagnose that or see problem in it. It's just a response to what has happened. And that's really what mental health is as well. It's a response to what somebody is going through. And to sit and say that one response is more reasonable or rational than another completely invalidates a whole host of other kinds of responses that you can have. So I'm going to talk more about that, um, you know, on an ongoing basis, but I just wanted to kind of precurse this. When I talk about anxiety and depression, I'm not talking about them in terms of a diagnosis. I'm talking about them in terms of a feeling that somebody has, and we all feel anxious and we all feel depressed or low at times. Some people experience it more heavily than others. Some people have those responses kind of shape their lives differently or impact their lives differently, but regardless, they're normal human responses. So moving on, just to give an example of grief and loss that's really reflective of of what's going on for us now with COVID, when I worked in youth custody, it was constantly addressing grief and loss. So all of our young people who would come into custody were grieving the loss of their freedom, their families, their friends, their lifestyle, their individuality. So young people in custody all have to wear the same clothes so they can be quickly identified as a youth in custody. They're grieving the loss of what they perceive to be normal relationships or the kinds of relationships that they want to foster. They're not necessarily keen to foster a relationship with the teacher who has the door locked and they're sitting in my classroom. They're also not necessarily looking to foster a relationship with the line staff who escorts them to and from school to programs. So even if we might be the, I don't know, for lack of a better word, healthiest option for them to be building relationships, there is still a sense of loss on them being able to choose what those relationships look like and who those relationships get to be with. There's also a loss of of dignity and respect. So I don't really conform to the idea that young people should be behind bars. It doesn't really make sense that young people are there that's not really an opportunity for learning and growth for them. In my experience, it lends itself to deeper entrenchment in crime. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that there needs to be consequences to violent crimes or perpetrators of of certain offenses. Absolutely. What I'm more saying, though, is that most young people, when they end up behind bars, they're very much a victim of their circumstances and hurt people hurt people and so rather than putting young people away locking them up to perpetuate that hurt it would just be in everyone's best interest to start to find some rehabilitation programs and offer a different kind of support that's all i'm saying and i didn't work there because i was really keen on seeing young people behind bars Uh, i worked there because i was really passionate about the the young people that were ending up behind bars. So just to make that distinction. But the reason I'm talking about youth in custody is because those young people were experiencing a ton of grief and loss. And there's so many more things that they're grieving the loss of that I didn't list. There's so many things that they're grieving the loss of that I can't even possibly understand. And so that's very similar to what families and and youth are experiencing right now. Now, a lot of people have compared being on lockdown during COVID to being in prison. And I'm not trying to do that at all because they're not the same thing. COVID is meant to keep us safe when we're locked down. The intention behind putting people behind bars is to keep everyone else safe. So imagine that distinction, that dichotomy there and how somebody would feel when they are 
essentially being told that it's not safe for them to be in the general public. There's a huge loss of dignity, um, particularly when you're 14 or 15. So please know that's not what I'm trying to say here. Um, what I am trying to say is that we have lost a lot of the same kinds of things, like our sense of freedom. Uh, we've lost some of our, our friendships and connections that way. For instance, like I w- my parents don't live in the same city as me. And the one time that they were here, I wasn't even able to see them because shortly after they started their stay in Victoria, we ended up on lockdown. So we're all kind of going through those things where we've had to say goodbye to people that we would really like to be able to see again um, and that we miss a great deal. Kids are also saying goodbye to clubs and sports and and teams that they've been a part of. They're also saying goodbye to some of their family. They're saying goodbye to their routines. There's like a sense of security and a sense of safety that they're now saying goodbye to. And that's also very similar to youth in custody. Youth in custody are also saying goodbye to a sense of security and safety. Their behaviors in community are often reflective of them trying to find safety for themselves. And they're responding to a a set of circumstances that many of us can't understand or relate to. And that's what's been happening during COVID too. So when we have significant changes of behaviors in our classroom, which I'm sure we'll see in, in the fall when we get back to school, and in some cases we already started seeing it online. And for folks who aren't going back to school in the fall, Again, you'll probably see it online. We have grief and loss at the base of those experiences and those emotions and those behaviors. Not only is grief really apparent, but you compound that with a feeling of confusion and um, you've got conflicting information about how to survive during a pandemic and conflicting degrees to which people are responding. Some people are, you know, face masks and stocking up on toilet paper and Lysol. And then you have other people who are saying, ah, it's not a big deal until they get into the grocery stores and the grocery stores are empty. And so you have this real divide on how people are choosing to respond to things. And that's really confusing, particularly for young people, because they don't have a lot of control in these situations. Their adults in their lives are often the ones who are making those choices as to how to respond to what's happening with COVID. So now we're partnering all of that stuff. We're partnering their feelings of loss and grief over all of these things, the feeling and sense of confusion and this this conflicting info and the fact that they're getting a whole bunch of information from social media that they're not necessarily going to know how to process. They also don't have now the places in which they would normally process these things. So normally in school, we're kind of the place that young people get to process what they're hearing on the news or what they're hearing on social media or what they're hearing from their families. And it's not just through their teachers that they're able to do this work. It's also through their peers. And now they're not going to be able to see their peers and they're not going to be able to see their teacher and there's no opportunity for growth and learning in that. So they're just kind of stewing in all of it. You don't have anybody who's validating or acknowledging or naming these experiences and they're sitting there in this really heavy feeling of grief and loss that they may not even understand. I went a really long time thinking that grief and loss were words that were only connected to death. But there's a lot of things that die, not just people or pets. We can lose a sense of self, we can lose a sense of connection, and all of those things are just as valid in terms of 
how we respond to them. And our grief can be just as heavy. And young people aren't often given the language to start to express that they feel grief and loss toward what's happening in the community right now. Now, it is probably starting to sound like I'm all for a quick return to school. And I know like other teachers there that are out there, we all want to get back into our classes. We want to see our students. We want to give them space to be able to process their feelings, see their friends, connect again, and have some grounding and routine. Of course we want that. But we don't want it at the expense of our young people's safety. I feel really privileged, and I've said this before, to be where I am in Canada. I'm on an island, and uh, we've been very, very fortunate with our COVID cases, and our government here in BC has been very responsive. And really, across Canada, we've been very responsive, but in particular, here in BC. We have a pretty remarkable woman at the helm here, Dr. Bonnie Henry, and we've, you know, kind of had a, a lot of really optimistic and positive guidance from her while also hearing the cold hard truth and not everyone has that experience so I know that I'm coming from a place of being in a very different situation than what some other school districts are are in right now however whether we're returning to school or we are waiting and and working online we're still kind of grappling with the same fears and the same concerns um, in terms of our young people's mental health And knowing my students, particularly my theater kids, who I am very connected to and who I hope feel very connected to me as well, I know how they've been living it. And the grief and loss that they're experiencing that they feel unable to name at this point is really compounding feelings of anxiety and depression. And as most teachers at this point know and at least can recognize, anxiety and depression were at a huge upswing. Like it's one of those things that is a feeling that is constantly growing it's a pandemic in amongst itself and it doesn't really show a lot of signs of slowing down so it's important to kind of be aware of that and to know that it's not going to get any better when we get out of out of pandemic mode and we start to shift back into routine because it takes a long time to heal from trauma and grief and loss is a sense is a is a type of trauma And um, I think I talked about it in another podcast, but I'll just kind of review it really quickly. There's, There's like big T and little T trauma. What I consider big T trauma are like surviving a natural disaster, abuse, violence, those kinds of things. Little T trauma are the smaller things that happen on a day-to-day basis that everyone is kind of experiencing in different waves and different fluctuations that we don't necessarily know it at the time or identify it at the time as trauma. Now, COVID itself is a big T trauma. But all of the little things that have happened since, every time a young person is exposed to conflicting information in the media, every time they get into a battle with somebody about wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, every time they come to school and they start to see their teacher who maybe has a full face shield, a mask on, they're six feet away from their peers. Those are all little T traumas. The things that they're not necessarily given space to identify as being traumatic because it's to keep them safe can still feel traumatic to a young person, particularly our littles. And our high school students, they're just going to experience it differently. And they're going to see that and they're going to go through a whole new wave of grief and loss. That loss of contact is really huge. And we can't underestimate the influence that that will have on how our young people respond. So 
In another podcast, I'm going to talk about social responses and the relation to recovering or healing from trauma. I don't think that we need to get into that now, but um, there's a really interesting link between how people respond and how people actually recover from trauma. And so if we're put in a position where students aren't actually given space to process their trauma, they're not acknowledged or heard for what that trauma has done to them, they don't have names or language for how to say that they're experiencing grief and loss, or they don't have any tangible way of identifying specific losses that they're sad about, all of those things are perpetuating that feeling of trauma and and how people respond to it. So because there's a myriad of ways in which people can respond to trauma and they all seem to fit some sort of a mental health diagnosis, which you know from the earlier part of this podcast, I don't love mental health diagnoses. But then we're going to end up at some point in the near future with a whole host of people with these labels slapped to them or they're looking for labels because they need to have a language to identify what they're experiencing. And so we need to be able to provide that language. We need to be that buffer to say, this is what grief and loss is. And then it gives students an opportunity to start to process that. Just going back to the whole little T, big T trauma thing, when we start to look at little T trauma again, we're asking a whole room full of grieving youth who don't understand that that's what's happening to sit in a room with a grieving adult, their teacher. Not that teachers can't put things aside when they walk into the room. I work with some pretty incredible people and um, and I know that they do this every single day. They always leave their baggage at the door. They walk in and they hold space for their students in a way that is incredible. And so I've been really lucky to be able to see that in action. But we're still, as teachers, identifying our own griefs and losses that we're going through right now. And so the way that we're going to be responding to students is going to be at a slightly diminished capacity because there's a reason we have a bereavement leave when somebody loses someone. Because people need space and time to grieve. They need space and time to to process what it is that they've lost, to be with family or other people that they love and can relate to, and to come back with a little less weight to that, to that feeling and that experience. And we're not necessarily allowing space for that because right now we're still realistically in isolation, at least somewhat. We haven't gone back to enough normalcy that we can grieve what we've lost because we're still losing it. And so this is where it's problematic because we're asking teachers to go back into the room in some cases, in some communities where it's really dangerous, where COVID cases are, are much more severe than they are here. Like for instance, I, I feel pretty safe going back in the fall to part-time, but that's because I also trust, given how things have gone so far, for our government to do something about it. I know not everybody can say that. So that's what I'm really addressing here. We're asking teachers who haven't had space to process what they've lost and to understand their own grief because they're continuing to live it every single day to go back into a room full of students and to have the capacity to be able to articulate and hold space for that is unreasonable and really, really challenging. And I know teachers are going to do their absolute best to do that. But to do that while also trying to deliver curriculum in a very new and very unique way is really problematic. So what do we do about it? 
How do we support our students when it is going to be this new level of challenging that we haven't had to deal with before? Well, we talk about it. We start to give students language to start to name their grief and loss. We're really good about providing particularly littles with language around their feelings. I think that has been a huge shift since, well, since I was little, but definitely in the past 10 to 15 years. Social emotional learning has really skyrocketed and that's incredible. So littles have a lot of ways to identify their emotions, but they don't necessarily have a lot of ways to identify why they're feeling those emotions, particularly in a context like COVID where, um, it's so unprecedented that you can't even use it as an example when you are talking about emotions and how they come up. Our high school students, on the other hand, they might be able to say, I'm frustrated or I'm confused. They might be able to identify it at that base level, but they also need the language to be able to say and articulate what it is that they've lost and what it is that they're grieving the loss of. Like our grads this year, it's really easy for them to say, I'm really sad that we're not having a ceremony. But what's beneath that? It's not just the ceremony that they're grieving the loss of. Of course, like walking across the stage, it's tradition. It's this huge momentous experience that they've been waiting for for the past 18 years. But it's more than that. If they start to articulate exactly what it is that they're missing, they're missing the celebration with their friends. They're missing that feeling of accomplishment and achievement that comes from a ceremony. They're missing the opportunity to see their teachers in the audience who are cheering for them, their parents who are cheering for them. They're missing, like I said, the tradition of it. And so these are all at the base. The surface is, I'm really sad that I'm not going to get to have a ceremony. And that's absolutely valid. Of course, who wouldn't be? But beneath that, there's all these other losses that they're experiencing too, that they may need help trying to articulate. It's important to allow yourself time as well. And if you have a really great admin, like our school has a really awesome admin team. And I know I'm making it sound like everything over here is just like incredible and amazing all the time. I've been really lucky. I have, I work with a really incredible staff. I have a select few of like really close teacher friends who are absolutely phenomenal and teach me every single day how to be better at my job. And we had an incredible admin who are really supportive and nurturing. If you have an admin like that, I recommend talking to them, finding space throughout the day. If they can relieve you for 10 minutes, if you know that this is a a time that you need a bit of a break, um, it'd be great to start to set those things in motion now because we do want to make sure that we're not projecting our stuff onto our students. And I know I'm really, I have a hard time with this and this is something that I've had to practice in my years of teaching. If I'm sitting in a room and I notice my own anxiety is starting to ramp up and and I'm I'm a person who has experienced a lot of anxiety over the past several years. And so when I come into a room and I'm feeling that anxiety, I have to really make sure that it's my anxiety that I'm feeling and not a collective anxiety that I'm feeling. I'm pretty perceptive in terms of noticing that students are, their body language has changed, their interactions with each other have changed. So there are times when I'm like very confident that it's a collective feeling that's going on that needs to be addressed. But there are times when I have to be really cautious because it could just be me projecting my anxieties and my fears and my grief and my loss and all those other things. So make sure that you're giving yourself time in the day to check in. And if you are needing to start to address it with students collectively or individually, 
just make sure that you just take a breath beforehand and ask yourself, is this mine that I'm feeling right now? And am I worried about this student's sense of grief and loss? Or am I picking up on theirs? And if you're not sure, just ask them how they're doing. If you have a strong relationship with them, they'll tell you. If you don't have a strong relationship with them, this will help you get to the point where you do. It's helpful to have like physical cues so that you're not constantly bringing it up all day because I'm as much as I think that it's important to start naming things and calling it out, I don't think that it's something that needs to happen every second of every day. I think we run the risk of building it in students um, who would otherwise maybe not be experiencing any anxiety or depression. They might come in and think, oh, this is this is how I should be feeling. Okay, okay, I'll readjust and I'll feel anxious and I'll feel depressed like everybody else. So it's a fine line and I know that it's it's, I'm contradicting myself a little bit here, but it is a really fine line between making sure that we acknowledge it and name it and making sure that we're not perpetuating it and essentially encouraging it from students who might not be living that same experience. So physical cues can be really helpful. I had these little like stress balls. They call it, they're called mood dudes and they're like pretty cheesy looking. They all have like a stupid expression on their face that doesn't actually reflect any concrete emotions. They're like in, up, open to interpretation, but they're stress balls and they're kind of silly and kids always get a kind of a kick out of them because they're funny and whatever. But when I worked in the custody center and they're tailored more to like little kids interestingly enough, but the kids in the custody center loved them. And actually every group that I've had since then has really loved my mood dudes. But the custody center kids, I'd I'd line them up on the edge of my desk. And if they came in and they didn't want to be spoken to, if they needed space, they would grab one of the mood dudes off my desk and put it on the corner of their desk. So they didn't have to say a single word to me, but I knew today's not a day for me to go up to them and check in. I'm not going to go up and say, how are you doing today? Because they're asking me very specifically with a physical cue, not to do that. So having those little things set in place beforehand can be really helpful because then you're not put in a position where you're bringing it up all the time, but you are able to then spot it kind of at a glance, right? When there are kids who are really struggling and do need you to check in with them, maybe the next day, there is a way for you to do that. Another helpful strategy is like five finger check-in. And I'll do this sometimes throughout the day, like For instance, if my musical theater students or my drama students are like, it's kind of a heavy day and we do a check-in once a week anyway, but if it seems like it's kind of a heavy day, I might even stop a class and be like, okay, hold your hand up, finger out of five, Uh, five out of five means you're doing great today, everything is 100% and go down the line. So obviously four, you're okay, three, neutral, two, not so good, one, really need a check-in one-to-one. The other students often are too busy looking at you because they've got you, they've got your attention. Sorry, you've got their attention, but um, you can then take a quick glance through everybody and see if there's any ones or twos that are up there that you think might need that extra support today. Be a little more lenient if your policies are super strict in terms of, of work I, I don't mean necessarily bend your um, behavior policies or your classroom management policies. People have those because they work for them. But being lenient in terms of when or how students complete their work or how they demonstrate their learning can be really helpful for both of you. It can be helpful to just communicate with parents too, checking in with them once a week. 
some families are not going to be comfortable communicating with you directly if there's a problem. However, if you breach that barrier to begin with and you send them an email and say, hey, checking in, this is what we're doing this week. Send me an email if you have any questions or comments or concerns. Sometimes that's enough to kind of encourage a parent to respond. And then feel free like to point out how weird the situation is. You don't need to come in to class next year being 100% on board with the new policies that are in place. It's not about presenting a united front with government policy, with district policy. It's about presenting a united front with your students. And a united front with your students shows them that you are also aware of how strange this is and how uncomfortable it might be, but that you're still going to be there and you're still going to help them process whatever is going on for them. That's kind of my overview of grief and loss and how it relates to COVID, but I'd really love to hear from other people. So if you want to send me an email, I would love to hear from you. Feel free to um, yeah, hit me up on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. And yeah, I hope to hear from some people soon and I hope all the best for everyone as they go back to school or start to transition. I know some people in the States are starting to transition back really soon. So be safe and don't forget to teach, emote, and repeat. 